It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Good to have you back with us, and we got a program in store for you. Uh, there is a wonderful HBCU class clash coming this weekend uh, during the holiday weekend. Uh, in South Florida, we're hoping FAMU has all of its players there. We'll explain that entire situation. A little bit later in the program, we'll visit with uh, Dan Taylor. He's got a fantastic book about a pioneer in the National Football League that maybe doesn't come to mind immediately. Uh, but first, and rightfully so, uh, Kirk, as we saw this news surrounding the Duke women's volleyball team, we knew this would be uh, first and foremost on our program. If you haven't heard about this, uh, Duke and uh, BYU playing last weekend in Provo. Uh, and uh, it was a complete mess. Um, at the center of this uh, is Rachel Richardson, who we'll hear from, from in a moment, who is a volleyball player at Duke. Um, a family member of hers let us all know initially that Richardson, uh, one of four black players on the Duke roster, and the only one of the four who starts was called the N-word every time she served the ball by a BYU fan. Uh, how they should have reacted, what happened all after, we'll get into in a little bit. But our friend and colleague, Holly Rowe, had the pleasure of sitting with Ms. Richardson, who is a complete delight. And uh, you'll enjoy, in her own words, uh, everything that went down. So kind of explain to us, like, as you're getting ready to serve and as you're playing, kind of what happened next. At the end of the second set, I had gone back to serve. And, you know, they heckled throughout the entire game. That's just a part of sports. You get used to playing through extreme environments like that. And very distinctly, though, you know, I heard a very strong and negative racial slur. And then the next time I went back to serve, I heard it extremely clear again. And But that was the end of the game. And so we switched sides. And I went into one of my... One, a teammate that I'm just super comfortable, super close with. And I told her what had happened and immediately she was like, all right, let's go tell coach. So she came with me, we told our coaches and they went to the officials. The officials, we saw them speaking with the BYU staff and then um, we were told someone was speaking to the student section and I was like, all right, so, and that was the end of it. And we played our third set on the opposite side of the net from them. And then the fourth set, when we went back to that side, it was almost as though like the atmosphere of the student section had changed. And even like, my teammates who were on the bench, like my black teammates who were on the bench who don't play, like they were being called out, pointed at. It was really confusing as to why. And that's when the racial stories and heckling, it just grew more extreme, more intense. So I know there's been a lot of people saying, oh, we should have stopped playing. Everyone should have walked off the court. There should have been an immediate protest. But the fact that I saw my teammates and coaches immediately go to the officials right after I told them, like that was action enough in that moment. And that made me feel seen, that made me feel heard and valued by my team and coaches. So I was like, you know, they've done what they can do on their end. And all we can do is continue to play volleyball. 
you've had conversations with the athletic director, Tom Homo, and the coach, Heather Olmstead. What can you share about these conversations and, and how they are addressing this? Well, the very next morning, the athletic director came to our hotel because he wanted to speak to me and obviously express how sorry he was for everything that happened. He wasn't at the match that night. I very much so felt heard and felt seen during that conversation. I could I could feel and I could see like how sorry he was and honestly shocked that it happened. And I mean, any athletic director, any person running an institution would likely be shocked that something like that could or would happen in 2022. And he did, he ran me through the truth, which is that sadly, you know, he really only has control over BYU athletics, over his athletes in particular, not the entire student body. So not the fans, not the regular students. And that kind of put my mind in an entire different perspective because we as athletes, we do have access and we do have mandatory training in things like this. We get training on what to do in case of sexual assault, in case of racism, and all types of things that a lot of students, sadly, they aren't trained on, they aren't educated on. So when things like this happen, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to stop it. They don't know how to react. And so more often than not, you know, you have that bystander effect come into play where they're just like, well, I'm just going to stay out of it. And he then told me that, you know, they planned on taking that student section out just to make players feel more comfortable and that he would talk to their administrators at BYU in efforts to get that type of education and training that we as athletes get for their entire student body because it shouldn't be that hard to, you know, get a couple hundred students to sit through a seminar and just walk them through basic things. How has your team and your coaches and your community at Duke supported you through this? Well, first of all, Nina King, our athletic director, she was the first person we saw when we landed from Utah. And she immediately told us, you know, like she has our back and that she loves us. I've had tons of professors that I've never had. And considering my major, I definitely will never have reach out to me and just expressing their support for me, telling me that they're here if I need anything. Our coaches constantly checking in on not just me, but the entire team every day. My teammates have been phenomenal with reaching out to me and not just me, but my other black teammates as well. And just ensuring that we're okay, that we feel safe, we feel heard. Even asking like, is there anything else that I could have done in that situation to make you feel more comfortable, more safe? And it's just like, that's how you know they truly do care. Like we truly are seen, valued. Not only do they want us to be here, but we belong here. Did any of the BYU players reach out to you? A lot of them have reached out to me, just, you know, expressing how sorry they were. And like I said in my statement, that is a great group of girls. They were so sweet, acted so sportsmanlike before the game, after the game, during the game. And even the fact that they reached out to me, it shows a lot. And not even them, other student athletes from BYU have reached out to me, you know, expressing how sorry they were that that happened on their campus. The way you have addressed all of this, and particularly in your statement, was not out of anger or fear. It was out of compassion and love. And I just wondered, why did you choose that when so many people would have had a very different reaction? I believe that meeting anger with anger, it just starts a cycle of more anger. As a young Black woman in America, I know I don't have the privilege of reacting all the time, or else it paints that face of, oh, you're just another angry Black woman. I felt as though responding to it in the way that I did would help the greater purpose, and that's creating awareness, and that's allowing everyone from both sides to better see the fact that we should all be working towards a common goal. We shouldn't be trying to create two sides. 
what I want the most out of this, one, is to raise awareness, and two, to hopefully encourage institutions such as BYU and others to start really putting in those efforts and the funds to educate the general student body. I don't want to group BYU altogether in a negative light. So I've just seen it as an opportunity to raise awareness for the fact that racist incidents such as these, they still are happening. It is 2022 and it should be unacceptable, but it still happens. And that is due to a lack of education on situations such as these, a lack of education on how to deal with people who might still be ignorant, who might be racist. You know, you have to learn how to look at someone as a person and only that, because that's what helps you meet someone with compassion. Kirk, what's staggering is it feels like Miss Richardson is the most mature uh, yeah. at the center <laughs> of all this mess. Think about all the failures in place. Yeah. And I'm going to give BYU some kudos before I crush some elements of <laughs> the experience of, of reacting properly. Like it, there's only so much you can do real time. Uh, there's a lot of folks, as, as Rachel noted, who do a really good job of talking, well, what I would have done. Okay, you don't, you have no idea what right. you would have done in that moment. And now what we're hoping is that there's a really good dialogue happening on campus across America on one, how to deal with fans that are unruly, out of order and derogatory in this manner. And also what would you want from your team players, coaches, and administrators having this discussion if subjected to this type of nightmare. Yeah, you know, it, it, this was a lot, Jackson. I was, uh, you know, for a guy who has played at BYU throughout my career when I was at San Diego State, a guy who was at BYU last year doing broadcasting two football games um, for ESPN. Um, I, I know the dynamic when you go to Provo, Utah. Um, it's, it's not many of us. <laughs> I would say that I'll tell you that there's not a lot of African-American people that you see on a day to day. Um, but I've been there in different occasions and I would always say that the fans that I was around always treated me with the utmost respect. Always. I just, just fans would always, they polite, they would greet, um, I, I remember one of the great games I ever been to was back in 2010. Uh, I went to <clears throat> Jimmer Fredette versus Kawhi Leonard. Mm. It was BYU San Diego state and it was must see TV. I said, you know what? I, I don't travel to a lot of college basketball games, but I, I'm gonna go to this game. And it was me and my buddy. And I promise you, we kept laughing. I said, "We it may be five brothers in here out of 30,000 people. <laughs> and we and we two of them. We, we joked about it. We had fun about it. But I always remember uh, we had our San Diego State gear on. And not once did I feel like people would attack me, not just because of the school I went to or the, what I'm, the, the you know, the, my, my school colors, but because I was a black man, too. So we walked out of that arena, the Marriott Center, where they play games at. And I said, man, you know, this was a cool atmosphere. This was pretty cool. Obviously, hostile environment, but yet the fans treated me with the most respect. And now I fast forward to Miss Richardson and what she had to go through. Because this wasn't an ordinary person. This was a, a person who wasn't even a student. So I don't even know how you consider yourself a fan or to show up to 
go out and be this dramatic, this demonstrative to literally call someone the N word and repeatedly. I mean, I, you talked about, you know, her, just how she's tried to turn away from it, how she's moved on from it in terms of, I didn't let it uh, affect her and how people kept saying, man, I wish that would, you know, we've always had this Jax, right? Where we see something on television or we see it, uh, a clip here and there. And people always say, man, I wish that would have happened to me. I would have did such this, 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 and this. Until you're in that situation, you don't know how her Rachel and her teammates, how they react. You you heard her. The first thing she said was, I went to my coach and said, Coach, this is this isn't right. And coach goes over to say, Hey, this isn't right. So this was something that, to your point, I think it's a great point that people have to understand the proper protocols when something like this, because this was bigger than a, Hey, I don't like you because you go to Duke. I hate the Blue Devils. This what this wasn't fanfare. This was bigotry. This was racism. This was assault. This was a little bit of everything. And I don't think BYU handled it correctly in it in the manner that they did. Maybe afterwards they've cleaned it up, but they in the present moment when it happened. Oh, that's an immediate ejection. Yes. Like that that's it, that's what should have occurred uh immediately. Just an, an ejection, and then you go to the adjudication of banning this person from all of your events correct um for the foreseeable future if not forever um and then there was the incident the bus by the way yeah uh, where somebody's <laughs> screaming to watch their back like man what are we doing like you, you just had that atmosphere right and i understand they they put a, a police officer near the bench mm-hmm. but man there should have been police presence all the way to the bus and if that stuff continued the people now now we're detaining and possibly arresting individuals. Uh, I, I don't know. Let's go to the Duke side of this. There's, the, right. there's a thinking that they should have walked off the floor. Um, I heard that. I heard I, that. Part there's two. It. Listen, I think each team has to decide how they want to deal with that. Correct. Right. Um, there's some teams that would say that uh, zero tolerance off they go. Other teams want to compete. That's what they're there for. They don't even want to give any, solace to someone feeling good as though they interrupted with their bigotry uh, the flow of the team. And I'm not sure either one is righter or wronger than the other. I'm just glad, as I mentioned earlier, now there should be uh, conversations and policies put in place. So there's not even, no one has to think about it, right? This is what we do when this foolishness occurs. It's one thing to heckle. Right. There there are hecklers. I've I've been across many of them in my career in the NFL who would heckle. Oh, go back home. You bum. You suck. You this. You. That's part of the game. And I love that part of the game. But then there's a line that you draw when now those your comments, your words are strictly directed at me because of the race, the color of my skin. Right. That's where. Hey, hey. We got to stop this. This this ain't it. And, you know, I, I don't... You've seen it before. How many times have we seen in the NBA where NBA players say, hey, look, this guy needs to be ejected? Oh, come on, man. I mean, you saw Russell Westbrook do it a couple of, hey, man, hey, do you... You're saying things about my family. It's one, like I said, it's one thing to heckle me about my play on the court, about you want to cheer for your team. That's great. 
but there is a line that you cannot cross. You cannot call me out of my name in terms of derogatory racial epithets that that that's not cool talking about my family and what you would do to my that we got to stop and so i've seen nba players do that stand up go hey excuse me security get this guy out of here i'm i'm not i can't play and this this is going on and i think that's kind of where you want to do that i mean that's where you want to continue to move on and say these policies need to also be in play when it comes to collegiate sports as well BYU banned uh, a fan. I'm not sure which one, by the way, or if this was the same <laughs> fan. Uh, that that has not been made clear uh, from all athletic venues on campus Saturday, a day after the match, and said that the athletic department has quote zero tolerance approach to this behavior. Uh, the fan was not a student, as you noted, but sitting in that student section, which I understand BYU is reviewing the placement of that student section in me. Um, if my understanding is correct, be maybe moving it, but let us not get too far away from the fact the most eloquent, the the most uh, mature, the most stoic person in all of this is a 19-year-old sophomore yeah. from Ellicott City, Maryland. Uh, <laughs> kudos to Miss Richardson. I'm sure we'll be hearing from her and about her down the road. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we turn our attention to the story, the inspirational tale of the trailblazing and pioneering of one Kenny Washington, the man who authored a book about him is Dan Taylor. He'll be with us next here on Forward Progress. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Time now to say hello to our guest today, and it's Dan Taylor, author of Walking Alone, the untold story of football pioneer, Kenny Washington and uh, Dan, thank you for joining us. This is a trailblazer story of all trailblazers. And there's a key component to understanding the story behind Kenny Washington, because this is a reintegration for the Mm -hmm. National Football League. Uh, Walk our listeners through uh, that timeline of inclusion, exclusion, and then return to the National Football League for African-American players. You had African-American players from 1920 through 1933. Fritz Pollard was among the first in 1920. Joe Lillard was the last when the Cardinals cut him uh, late in the 1933 season. And then you went 12, 13 seasons where the NFL had this unwritten policy not to sign African-American players, which changed in September of 1946 when the season opener, Rams-Eagles in the L.A. Coliseum, and Kenny Washington came in and uh, to spell uh, – Bob Waterfield, the MVP quarterback who went out with an injury, and uh, Kenny completed an 18-yard pass on his very first snap, and uh, the NFL was once again an integrated football league. You know, Dan, one of the things I was was thinking about when I looked at uh, some of the excerpts of the book, but more importantly, was that I'm here in Los Angeles, and you think of some of the people who have played in Los Angeles, right? Kobe Bryant. Uh, obviously Shaquille O'Neal, you could throw Kareem Magic, all of those. But to think that Kenny Washington was probably one of the, I guess, uh, most famous athletes that many people have forgotten about, we would say, because of his accomplishments, being grown up in the city, and how beautiful of a time it was. My wife's a UCLA grad, Dan, sorry about that. But uh, how beautiful a time it was to 
have so many great athletes and people come out of UCLA at a time where we're still figuring things out as a country. Well, UCLA had, they were a very unique program, a unique athletic department at that time. Of course, you had 1939, you had Jackie Robinson, who was a star of you know, four different sports at UCLA, <laughs> you know, maybe the greatest athlete of all time. Right. Uh, and then there were only about a dozen college football programs that were integrated at that time. And here UCLA had five African-American players and, and in Kenny, maybe, uh, I mean, Hall of Famer said he was the greatest player they ever saw. Uh, Jackie Robinson was a second team All-American. And, and we forget about Woody Strode, who uh, was a tremendous player and, and integrated the Canadian League uh, in, in the mid 40s or late 40s, I should say. Uh, just tremendous, tremendous athletes at that time. And UCLA was was really way ahead of the game. Talking to Dan Taylor, he is the author of Walking Alone, the Untold Journey of Football Pioneer Kenny Washington. Before we get to September 46 specifically, walk us through the buildup to Washington's opportunity here. You noted that uh, in the 30s and 40s that there may not have been a more popular athlete than Washington. Well, in 1939, Alice Marble wins Wimbledon. She comes home to Los Angeles and finishes second in the Athlete of the Year voting to Kenny Washington. Kenny was far and away the most popular athlete in Los Angeles. Um, he had movie opportunities as a result. Uh, he was a standout on the baseball field. Uh, people tried to get him to, to take up professional boxing, uh, both because of his skills and his popularity. There were predictions that in a year he would have uh, unseated Joe Lewis as the heavyweight champion if he went that route. Uh, Football-wise, I really believe you can make a case that he singularly is responsible for the NFL coming to Los Angeles. Because of his popularity, this new league was created. There were five football leagues in America uh, in 1940. Uh, the Pacific Coast Football League started that fall. And Kenny joined the Hollywood Bears and immediately was the sensation of the league. It was the only integrated football league in the United States. Uh, and his game sold out Gilmore Stadium at 22,000 seats regularly. The Rams in Cleveland were playing in an old baseball park that held 17,000. And they're an NFL champion, and they can't fill it. So, you know, Dan Reeves looked at Dallas. He put a deposit down on the Cotton Bowl and looked at Los Angeles. Well, there was no league in Texas at that time. But in Los Angeles, he could see tangible evidence of what potential professional football had, the NFL had based on the attendance that was coming in to see Kenny Washington. And everywhere he went, whether it was San Diego, whether it was across town for their game with the L.A. Bulldogs, whether it was Phoenix, the biggest crowds for these opposing teams came when they played Kenny Washington and the Hollywood Bears. So I think the Rams had a real good idea of, of what the potential was. Now, when they did come in, they had to try and gain a lease to play in the Coliseum. USC and UCLA had exclusivity on, on football in the Coliseum. And their lease agreement said no professional team could play in the Coliseum. That was negotiated out. Uh, and then when the Rams went to get their lease, Hallie Harding, who was a sports editor at the Los Angeles Sentinel, stood up at the meeting and made a very impassionate speech and said that the Coliseum was built by the taxpayers. And African-Americans were among those taxpayers. And that the Coliseum should not grant a lease to a team in a league that would not sign and play African-American players. And the Rams general manager, Chili Walsh, instantly said, well, initially he tried to deny it, which was undeniable, but uh, he immediately said, we will sign Kenny Washington. And that was uh, the movement that, that got Kenny Washington into the National Football League. 
you know, obviously the verbal uh, parts of, you know, Kenny had to adhere to, you know, when he's out trying to become, whether it was a baseball player or the football player that become in this untold journey of Kenny, Dan, is there a particular, uh, I mean, particular time or place or something that really stood out to you that Kenny had to, uh, had to come across? You know, he, I think he knew what the limitations were. He knew where the doors were not just shut, they were locked. Uh, his plan had been, uh, after the season, at U- his senior season at UCLA, uh, to complete his degree requirements and graduate, which he did. But he was then going to go to law school. And ultimately, once he got through law school, he wanted to work for the FBI. And it was the creation of the Pacific Coast League that changed the, that goal uh, set and, and got him focused on continuing in professional football. I think it was, you know, here on one hand, you had on this particular afternoon in December, he's trying to lead UCLA to its first ever Rose Bowl in, a, in an LA Coliseum with 103,000 people, the largest crowd at that point ever to see a college football game. You've got the biggest actors, the biggest celebrities in Hollywood that are there cheering him on. And across the country, the NFL is holding its draft and they've got over 200 names on a board of the draft eligible players. And here he is, winner of the Fairbanks Award for the College Football Player of the Year by the only unanimous vote. And he is not on that board. And it's just, it's stunning. And, and, there, and when he played in the College All-America game against the Green Bay Packers in August of 1940, he scored a touchdown on the Packers. He had a, a near record punt return. And after the game, the Packers players were unanimous. They were saying, if he were to come into our league, he would be the most exciting player in the league right now. And obviously he was denied for several more seasons. Dan Taylor with us here on Forward Progress, talking about the trailblazing of Kenny Washington. There's another story, an almost story, if you will, uh, that was so cool to see. You mentioned a little bit earlier uh, what type of baseball player he was, but uh, there's a story that he was nearly a part of the color barrier breaking in baseball with Jackie. Exactly. He and Jackie remained good friends. They did not play baseball together at UCLA. Kenny only played in 38, his sophomore year. Jackie only in 1940, his junior year. Uh, But there was a great respect. And when Jackie signed, uh, when Brooklyn arranged for him to sign with Montreal, their top farm team, uh, Branch Rickey had made it known he was going to sign two African-American players that season who would both spend the year in Montreal. And there were a lot of different people in the Dodger organization lobbying for different players. Leo DeRocher wanted Roy Campanella, for instance. Uh, there were scouts who wanted uh, Johnny Wright, a pitcher with the Homestead Grays. But Jackie was lobbying for Kenny and uh, made it known that Kenny was going to play baseball if that opportunity was presented to him. He was an outstanding shortstop. Uh, rival coaches thought he was major league caliber in 1938 as a sophomore. Later, there were scouts who said if he could have come into the big leagues out of UCLA, might have been one of the greatest power hitters the game ever saw. Um, the Dodgers did not get around. And, and there were others who also urged Branch Rickey to look at Kenny. Uh, the Dodgers did not get around to contacting him until late January of 1946, three months after Jackie signed, uh, two months after Jackie signed. And, and it, Kenny told them that he couldn't because he had something else to do. And what that was, was 10 days earlier, the Rams had announced they were coming to Los Angeles. They had reached out to him and extended a contract offer. And as Kenny said, I've always been a man of my word. I've given the Rams my word. I can't go back on my word. And and years later, he said he felt it was important 
to be that guy in the NFL like Jackie was in baseball. And then now you look at where the NFL is, and it, it wouldn't be without Kenny Washington. When you think about just his story, everything about it, and where the NFL is right now, do you think that there's more that the NFL could possibly do for Kenny? Just to, you know, we, we've seen it in Major League Baseball. No one's allowed to wear number 42 for Jackie. But when it comes to Kenny, I feel like the message for the pioneers or the historians of the sport, we know Kenny Washington, but I feel like there's something more maybe the NFL can do so that there is a remembrance of Kenny Washington even more. Kirk, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I think the NFL and the Rams should do more to recognize his role. Um, you, you look at 1948, his last season, the Lions and the Giants integrated. Right. What what was Kenny's impact and influence on that decision? 1949, George Taliaferro of Indiana University is the first African-American selected in the NFL draft. Taliaferro said, I always said if I could get into professional football, I wanted to be like Kenny Washington. He had such a profound impact. Uh, and you know that his character, the way he carried himself, the way he played, impacted general managers around the league and, and played a role in other teams electing to integrate. So, yeah, I think the league, and the Rams, I think, really should recognize him and recognize what he has done to professional football. Well, one of the challenges of being a pioneer and a trailblazer is you still have many closed minds that you are going to deal with as you go along the way. How bad was it for Washington for dealing with outsiders, maybe even some teammates, but definitely opponents and and different parts of the country? Well, it was difficult, Jason. I mean, at UCLA, they had a few players from the South when he joined the varsity in his sophomore year. And prior to their, their season opener with Oregon, a couple of those players were starting offensive linemen. And they announced publicly that when the ball was in Kenny's hands, they were not going to block for him. Uh, their head coach uh, came up with, a, with a, a plan to counter that, that Kenny had scored three touchdowns going into the late third quarter of his college debut. And their, their coach pulled him. And from that point on, UCLA didn't achieve a single first down the rest of the game. And the message was sent, you know, our success rides on this, this player. Um, opponents were horrific to him. Uh, players from the University of Missouri scooped up handfuls of chalk from the lines and attempted to smear it in his eyes when they tackled him. Uh, SMU players who had never before played on the same field with an African-American player uh, maliciously hitting with cheap shots throughout their game in 37. In the NFL, uh, there was a lot that went on in the piles, uh, uh, twisting of limbs, uh, mm. intentional efforts to injure him. And that did happen in 1947. He was second in the league in rushing. He had set the Rams franchise record, which still stands today for the longest touchdown run from scrimmage, 92 yards. And then late in that game with the Cardinals, well after the whistle, several defenders piled on him and, and twisted his legs and re-injured his knee. Uh, the Rams had a 1948 uh, exhibition game scheduled in Dallas. And when Kenny learned about it, he said, I'm not going. And uh, the Rams had to uh, take measures to ensure his safety and, and arrange for proper lodging. Earlier that year, Penn State had defied the Cotton Bowl and brought two African-American players into the Cotton Bowl. And they were housed on a Navy base because, or military base because none of the hotels in Dallas would house the Penn State team. So the Rams, uh, showed Kenny what they were going to do for him. And, and he changed and, and flew in the day of the game and played very, very well in that game against the Eagles. You know, Dan, I always like to ask when, you know, people go out and they read this book, walking alone, 
and they hear this story, what do you hope that they take away from it? Well, I certainly hope that it makes people reflect on how they, they treat people uh, and how we look at one another. You know, the athletic director for UCLA, whenever he encountered resistance to Kenny and, and Jackie and, and trying to arrange for housing on the road, he would say, we're all God's children. And I think that's profound. Uh, I also hope that people will look at Kenny Washington in a different light and understand a lot more about him and, and his role in American history, his role in sports history and his role in professional football history and, and put him on a much higher platform than where he has been these last 60 years. The book is Walking Alone, the untold journey of football pioneer Kenny Washington, the author Dan Taylor. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Dan. Thanks, Jason and Kirk. Great to be with you. Time now to take a break. When we come back, we dive inside the problem inside the FAMU athletic department that led to over 20 players from the football team not being able to play in week zero. Will they be ready for week one in South Florida? We will detail that story next on Forward Progress. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. Radio. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Thanks for rolling with us all the way through Forward Progress. That's Morrison. I'm Jackson. And we have to get inside this issue with Florida A&M. It, 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 the bottom line is they were missing 26 players last week uh, in a game that they were in for a minute, by the way, against yeah. uh, North Carolina. <laughs> then after that fantastic halftime show, uh, Tar Heels <laughs> busted loose. Uh, but the reason why, uh, fam, you was missing so many players uh, was due to the uh, process that each team has to go through uh, in the summer to make sure all of their players are eligible from the classwork uh, and many other boxes that have to be checked um, that happen after the season from the spring and the summer and then now right. into the beginning of the fall. Um, and credentialing these teams is a task. I happen to be a father of a graduate student who works in <laughs> compliance at a Division One institution, and I felt like he needed oxygen every day from <laughs> August 11th uh, yeah. through, uh, I believe they did that for a week. Um, but there's so many layers, right? So you have the inability to get these players cleared, sitting on the tarmac yeah. for hours, trying to get it squared away with the athletic department at FAMU and the NCAA. Um, it not getting done uh, in a timely or proper fashion, having to play under man, players reaching a point of disgust that they pen a scathing letter to the university president, which we'll talk about in a moment. And, um, and now everybody, including the conference, is trying to scramble to get the majority of these players back eligible and into the mix uh, with FAMU facing uh, Jackson State in the historical Orange Bowl Classic uh, in Miami Gardens, Florida, this holiday weekend. Um, I have some intimate knowledge. As we know, my, my mm -hmm. second son is a student at FAMU and has had uh, many dealings with this athletic department. And um, I'll talk to you about, as a parent, my right. perceptions of separation. But uh, as a unbiased uh, <laughs> observer, Kirk, I'll, I'll yeah. give you the floor first. Uh, sure. it, it just simply seems like if you find yourself in this place at that late date, there's something wrong with some of the mechanisms in your athletic department. 
Yeah, resources. Uh, how much do you have or what do you need? This isn't something that just happened a couple of days ago, a week ago. You've known about this all summer long. And so basically when these classes are taken and guys are should be eligible or deemed that if I do this, I should be eligible and ready to go, you expect to be go out there and play. This is what guys are doing all summer long to get ready. And then all of a sudden the day before or day of you're told, Hey, you're not eligible. You said, why I'm not, why am I not? I've done everything I was supposed to. Well, there's a disconnect between you and the compliance and also the people within the uh, administration that allowed me to take these classes and said, I would be eligible. And then the NCAA says that I'm not what's going on here. Where, where, where do we miss? What is the disconnect? And what I've seen since then is, and Coach Willie Simmons, a brother of mine, I know very well, basically saying, look, these are the resources that we have. And we've been trying to get things done. Now, all of a sudden, because the, the players have done the right thing and spoke up and said, this is what we have to go through. And you see the resources that we don't have. And now it looks as it's sort of a black eye on the university. And now the universities had their statement and said, well, we do the utmost. So, you know, they're going to do what, they, what they're supposed to do, Jack. But what I, what I saw is a bunch of young men had to stand up for themselves in terms of when I hear players are ineligible, the first thought, the first thought that you say, oh, somebody ain't going to school. Somebody's not doing the right thing. Right. And, and that's the first thing these guys says. No, 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 no. Let's not get this mixed up. We went to school. We did what we we're supposed to do. And yet we're still not able to go out and play. Don't put this stigma of we're ineligible because of something that we didn't do. No, we did what we were supposed to do. I had a friend of mine. I remember we we're in college. He was ineligible. He was no, no one wants that ineligible word attached to them. He was so <laughs> caught up in not being have been ineligible. He told his his grandparents that said, hey, why are you not playing, baby? He said, oh, I hurt my I hurt my hamstring. I'm out for the year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that. that's how important it is, Jax, for guys to not have that connotation put next to them that oh, deemed ineligible. So this was huge. And I'm glad that the players are able to step up. Now we're seeing resources being flown in, Jax. It's just it's a mess. And I don't think it should have got have gotten to this. The reality is, and you you nailed it, I mean, perfectly, is that the narrative is going to be that there's a shortcoming of performance in the classroom, and what we're dealing with is procedural issues. And it's not just the compliance part of it, uh, but you got academic advisement and the registrar's office all trying to coordinate in this space. And in the end, the question really starts at the top. As an administration, as a university president, Dr. Larry Robinson, who received this letter from FAMU's uh, football team, are you fully vested in your, not just your football program, but the branding of your university is reaching an all-time high? Correct. It has for the last couple of years. But your athletic department doesn't have what it needs, including a full-time athletic director? Mm. It's absurd. Yeah. 
like you had you dismissed your athletic director in the spring, and you're still still on an interim. I mean, that's now we're starting to, to get to the point where I get that university presidents have a boatload on their table, right? right. Mm-hmm. And and fam, you for those <laughs> who don't know, sits in the capital, Florida, and a lot of great work has been done, particularly over the last two years, as there's been a surge of energy to make sure HBCUs are on the proper platform, particularly from a resource standpoint, uh, from the private and public sectors uh, impacting this university. But I'm not sure there's been a full shift from the president's office on down, recognizing that even with the glorious history, even with a beautiful slate of alumni, that there's nothing you're going to do, like it or not, to market university uh, dynamics any better than through the flamethrower that an athletic mm-hmm. department becomes and can be, particularly when people are paying attention um, to your athletic programs. And obviously, FAMU and so many other schools I have the glorious love that goes along with the long history and entertainment of their bands on top of it. Uh, but there has to be an understanding that this can't just be something on the edge of campus. No, not with everything that's been poured into the school, particularly um, from major brands and major stars, as we noted with Nike and LeBron. Um, it's absurd. Like this shouldn't, this isn't something where we're looking around at a half dozen HBCUs last week and this week, and they're struggling. I believe, Coach, as it pertains to resources, it shouldn't be that way. Correct. The no. dough is on hand. <laughs> it's coming in. And I think also, too, it's, you know, we, um, you know, we always talk about when guys take a knee for protests against the national anthem. That's been, you know, the huge thing. He took a knee to protest the anthem because he doesn't believe in what our, our, our country's beliefs are not being upheld the way that many people who uh, think that they should. But now you have players who are taking a knee to the playing of their own alma mater, saying that we don't believe in the way that our university is treating us. We're not taking the field for the name on the front, FAMU. We're taking the field to fulfill the brotherhood of what we've worked hard for, for our families, for our coaches, the ones who are really fully invested. That's the one that hit me the most, Jax. That that hit me that we're not playing for this university until we fix this. We got to fix this. We can't have this disconnect between administration and players. It should all be one in the same. Yeah, it crushes morale. It's embarrassing. Uh, It's it's a series of things. Uh, Kirk, here's what FAMU has provided Lately, here's the latest statement, I should say, Mm -hmm. in regard to trying to get 20 members ready to go uh, for uh, what is the next thing, right? Being committed to upholding high standards and rigorous adherence to NCAA guidelines uh, after the assessment of spring and summer academic progress, the compliance team exercised due diligence to complete the certification progress on August 11th before the fall sports season began. Obviously, that did not occur. And now they've had the extra week to try to get all that done. Uh, As I noted a little bit earlier, I'll see everybody uh, before the contest as an MC of the kickoff. Right. 
for the Orange Bowl Classic down in here in South Florida. So I'm hopeful that I see a full contingent that roll into that room uh, for uh, Jackson State and, and FAMU. But, but the question I think still remains is, as we noted, uh, SWAC now involving themselves into the equation uh, to send resources to FAMU to try to get this done. Um, I don't know if I can make this point enough. This is about FAMU making sure all the things are in place, utilizing resources that are in place to get the proper personnel numbers in mm. place. I don't want that to be confused. Yeah, this is just something that you, you mentioned the team that they're going up against, right? FAMU versus Jackson State. Obviously, we've uh, we've highlighted Jackson State a couple of times on this program. Their head coach, NFL Hall of Famer, Deion Sanders. And Deion's been speaking for a long time, Jax, just about this particular situations that involve HBCU and not having enough of the resources that are needed to fulfill some of the obligations that the program has to go through, you know, with compliance, with, um, you know, uh, scheduling, planning. The more resources you have, you don't have these types of problems. So it's it's kind of funny that this week that FAMU is going up against the coach who's been clamoring for it for a long time, and no one's just kind of ignored it. It's all oh, whatever. And now when you have this platform, FAMU, Jackson State, man, last year's game, by the way, for people who looking for a good game, last year was 7-6. to six. <laughs> it was a seven to six game last year in, in favor of FAMU. So, uh, I mean, if in favor of Jackson State. So, hopefully, we have another great game, but the focus should be on these players and how great the HBCU game is. And yet, we're going to be focusing on if eligible players for FAMU are a- available to play and not necessarily how great that particular classic is going to be. Now, this isn't as important as getting your house in order, but this is a swack East. Uh, rivalry. It is. Oh, this yeah. is FAMU <laughs> wants to be uh, in the in the conversation for conference title, and to play a high profile, pivotal game, uh, basically in your backyard in your state uh, against the the visiting Jackson State. I'm not sure if they're the visitors for the game. It is <laughs> a neutral site, but it, this is not where you want this to be. You can only hope that uh, things. Uh, find their way to the right spot as soon as possible. Good luck to both teams in the Orange Bowl Classic right mm-hmm. here in South Florida this very weekend. I have the pleasure of hosting their kickoff dinner uh, on Thursday night of uh, this week before the holiday. Um, so I look forward to hopefully reporting back to you next week that all things are <laughs> in order. That's going to do it for us. We're so thankful for Dan Taylor to swing by and share his uh, book with us. Uh, That's all the time we have for our producer, Pernell Brown, my partner, Kirk Morrison. I am Jason Jackson. We'll talk to you next time on Forward Progress. Forward Progress is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.